It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Phillies Backstage. Tom Burgoyne, along with Director of Fun and Games for the Phillies, John Brazier. And, John, I can't believe we have never had this gentleman on our podcast. I can't believe it took this long. Well, especially since he was my boss for many years. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't understand. And you said, have we ever had the Baron on? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, sure we have. But you looked it up, I right? I looked it up. We, somehow we, we missed it. I, I don't know how we did I it. don't know how that happened. But, Baron, you're finally on Phillies backstage with two <laughs> knuckleheads. Well, Hitler's streak is over, I guess, right? <laughs> how are you? It's great to hear you. Well, you hey, I'm hanging in there. I'm what? hanging in there. Good. Good. Like everybody else, suffering a little bit with this team. It's mm. just amazing. But, uh, you know, you have to look back to a year ago. We had no baseball this time. So I'll take any baseball. Yeah, isn't that the truth, Baron? And, um, yeah. uh, you know, John and I today were actually just out snipping the, the black ties that hold up the seats because we are going to 100% starting on Friday. That's, so That's right. 100%. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah, we're we're really excited about it, and uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, things are coming, you know, coming back to normal, and uh, it's just great to have fans coming back, uh, you know, uh, to the ballpark. Yes. That's for sure. Yep, and for many, 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 many reasons, uh, because yeah. I think we need this, we need diversion from what we went through a year ago, and the players need it, uh, and obviously the financial end of it is a positive, but I think it's it's another it's a it's not a small step to back, get back to normal. It's a giant step back to normal, I think. Yep. And for those that don't know the name The Baron, uh, <laughs> it's Larry Shank. And Larry Shank is the longtime, longtime uh, PR director. In fact, he started with the Phillies in 63, but that wasn't your first job out of school. I know you went to Millersville. Uh, talk about uh, what you majored in college and uh, your first job out of school. Well, I majored in elementary education. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went to Millersville, and the best thing that happened there is I met my wife there, and um, we had a long marriage. Um, and uh, when I got out of high, when I got out of college, I, I was applying for teaching jobs, and um, I stopped by the Lebanon Daily News, which is where my hometown newspaper, and I said I was looking for a summer job, and uh, they said, well, we don't have any summer jobs, but we have a job for a part-time sports writer who would work sports on Friday night and do general news the rest of the time. So I thought, well, I'll take this. You know, if I don't do well here, I can always go get, go back to my teaching degree. So I worked at the newspaper from June of, I guess, uh, 1961. Um, I wrote murders and funerals and weddings and Cub Scout meetings and United Way campaigns, and every Friday night I was in the sports department. There were two other people in there. And after a while, I got itchy from that, and uh, 
The Phillies PR job opened up that fall, 1961, and I applied on my Lebanon Daily News letterhead and got a thank you that um, we filled it. They took a gentleman by the name of um, Charlie Beck from the Westchester Daily Local News, was hired. And uh, so I, um, that fall, I started getting itchy to be writing more sports. So I was interviewed in Wilmington, Delaware, with the News Journal and for Charlie Beck's position at uh, the Daily Local News in the same day, as uh, thick November of 62, and I didn't get either one of those jobs. And fortunately, um, the person they hired in Wilmington quit after 10 days, and I was brought back and got a job in Wilmington. And I started in January of 63. Um, but actually, actually, the Phillies job also opened up in 1962 after that season, and um, I applied for that and didn't get it. So in 63, I'm at the News Journal. I'm covering high school sports for the state, which is, which is big in Delaware. And that that October, the Phillies job opened up again. Um, Charlie Beck didn't work out, I guess. And they were replacing him. They were looking to replace him. So I applied, and this time I was in the right place at the right time, and I was offered a job, and the rest is history. The third time is the charm, huh, Baron? Third time is the charm, exactly. <laughs> so if you don't succeed, keep trying. You know, be persistent. Uh, it was my dream, and I was fortunate to live my dream. Uh, actually, my dream was to be a broadcaster, but guys like Bai Sam and Andy Musser, Harry Callis were ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I applied for a job at the Lebanon News, um, WLBR, the station that carried the Phillies game in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, to do, do weekend sports or weekend news reports. So I went in for an audition, and I butchered all the foreign leaders' names, so I didn't get that job either. <laughs> well, speaking of names, uh, it was somebody at the Wilmington paper that gave you your nickname uh, that, that obviously Tom yes. Gomez was referring to, uh, the Baron. Talk about Al Cartwright. Yes. Al Cartwright was a sports editor. He worked during the daytime. I was on the morning news, so I worked from 4 o'clock in the afternoon to 2 o'clock in the morning. So he would leave you notes in your cubby, you know, and uh, he would – critique you or he'd give you assignments and so forth and he always tagged it baron von schenk because of the german name you know and pennsylvania dutch country and somehow the baron stuck with me and it went with me all through my life and it's but up here at myris grove people don't know who the baron is so that's that's the way it is <laughs> baron I, I you know looking back you know in those days in the 60s and into the 70s and before computers and word processors you know set the scene i mean i guess uh Connie Mack uh, had a, a press box and guys on their typewriters trying to meet deadlines i mean i just can't even imagine what it was like back it, in those it was, days yeah it was totally different we uh, everybody had a manual uh, typewriter <laughs> Uh, Western Union was there, and so the writers would type their stories on on newspaper paper, which is really brown, cheap brown paper, hmm. and then hand it to the Western Union operator, who would then keystroke it to the office. Hmm. And the writers back then wrote the game stories. They didn't go to the clubhouse and do quotes after the game. But over the course of time, TV started doing more games, and so that meant that uh, fans really saw what happened more than had to read about it. So the writers then started, had to go to the clubhouse again. That was in the late sixties, I guess it was, you know, when they started going to the clubhouse to get quotes, you know, and we had two wire services back there and the AP and the UPI. 
the UPI didn't have a sports person per se, so they asked me if I would do it. And I said, I'd be glad to do it. And they, I got some extra money to write game stories for the Phillies for UPI. Yeah. And then they came along and said, well, you have to go to the clubhouse after the game to get quotes from both clubhouses. I said, I'm not, I, that's not, oh, I'm going to do that. I can't do that. Okay. So I didn't do that. I stopped that then. So, you know, and, and when we made a trade back then, you, you called people on the phone and you dictated. You had to dictate to the AP and UPI a story because you might wind up with somebody on the desk at, at AP in Philadelphia that knew nothing about baseball, you know. So it was different. Um, you didn't, we didn't have press conferences when we made trades back then. You know, it just wasn't the same thing. And obviously there was no social media. The social media part was part of my job when I started. Mm, yeah, our job is to entertain writers, get them drunk. <laughs> social media. <laughs> there you go. That's a good uh, definition of social media. You know, but yeah. were they able to like meet deadlines, Larry? Like, you know, uh, it just seemed so kind of archaic, if you want to use that word uh, back then. But you know, were they able to meet their deadline and have that story in the morning paper? They did. The Inquirer was a morning news. The Fulton yeah. was the evening paper, and the Daily News was in between. So the morning, the inquirer was Alan Lewis at the time, had several deadlines. Mm. So he would write a, a story for the one deadline and update it for the next one, and then, then the final edition, whatever that was. Yeah. The bulletin was always later, and the Daily News had uh, later a deadline too. So uh, it was different back then. You know, we, the press box was on the roof, hung from the roof at, at the County Mac Stadium. We had an elevator that held about four people. And you, to take the steps up there, you were taking your life under your sands unless you bring good help. You know, it's right. hard to get up there. Yeah. So we, we, we had, we didn't have any press dining area or something like that. We serviced, we had sandwiches and hot dogs. Um, every, every home game, that's all we ate was sandwiches and hot dogs. <laughs> and now your first year was 1960. Your first season, I guess it was 64. And I, I understand that the there wasn't a big budget, I guess, in your uh, in this department or the Phillies. So did didn't you have to make the media guides yourself, and and Julie helped you as well? Yeah, we we were the only team that didn't have a media guide. I went to Frank Powell at the time, who was my boss, I guess as you could say, and I wanted to produce a, a media guide for the Phillies. I said we're the only team that doesn't have it. And I brought them along. I, I was grew up near. I grew up near Lebanon Valley College, and they had a media guide for their football team. So I showed them the media guide from Lebanon Valley College, and he said, "We can't budget something like that." So I didn't stop. We I typed it up, and and Julie helped me do it. We our living room. We were living in the apartment in Roxburgh at the time. Our living room floor was covered with pages of this media guide. I think we did three hundred or something like that. She colored the covers with a magic marker. The Phillies red hat which was the logo at that time wow and we had to punch holes and put staples in it and so forth and they're still around and somebody said they're worth like two or three hundred dollars of the good condition <laughs> i don't know where i have one uh, if, there's, if it exists but then in 1965 i went and got one printed without even asking and survived that and uh, so wait, now see. the media guy well, i was gonna media say guy today is a book now oh, yeah. yeah well oh, i was yeah. gonna say that if now, 64 obviously was the big collapse. What if we made the World Series, played the Yankees? What would you have done from a, hmm. you know, what would you have had to do for the World Series? I mean, you would have been scrambling, right? Knowing been that? up all night. I'd probably have been fired. <laughs> 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 I mean, we were we were playing for the World Series. I had no idea. You know, I'm, I'm a fan, really. And we're in first place, which didn't happen with the Phillies much. So 
don't bother me with these details. I remember George <laughs> Harrison, the treasurer, chewed me out one time for not taking enough notes and paying attention. Well, it was hard. We, you know, we had antiquated facilities at the ballpark, but it was different back then too. Um, the press box was on the roof, and we didn't have to have a thousand media credentials back then, but we needed extra space, so we'd take some seats in the stands. Um, the TV booth was, was behind home page, behind, behind home plate. On top of the backstop, there was a couple booths down there. We, we brought in a bulldozer to move some of the ground on either side of the, both dugouts to add some more field seats. Uh, we printed the World Series tickets. We distributed them because we had to. You know, was, um, you just couldn't do things quickly back then. We printed a World Series cover for the program because mm. it's poor, poor color back then. You didn't. You, it took time. Sure. And don't tell anybody, but we used that cover, I think, for the 1967 media yearbook. So <laughs> right. We got saved, good use out saved of it. some money. There, yeah. You know, when the so vet that, when the vet was uh, coming along, you know, how excited were you, and you know, just and how different it was. Such a different ballpark. Uh, was I guess there was a lot of excitement to move out of Connie Mack and into you know at the time was really a, 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 you know yeah. the new thing. It was. It was. We were totally. We had 11 people in the front office at that time, you know, year round. And uh, I was concerned because moving to a new ballpark, we we're going to have more seats to sell and amenities that we didn't have before. And I was concerned what we were going to do. And I, I had a an opportunity to talk to Bob Carpenter, the president, which wasn't a, a frequent thing you could do. And I brought up the fact that I think we need to change our philosophy and what we're doing. And we need to have more PR. We need to have sales and all this and that. And I left his office, didn't think I made very much, didn't make any headway. You know, I didn't get any any guarantee or feedback that it was encouraging. So lo and behold, weeks later comes the announcement that we've hired Bill Giles as executive vice president for the Phillies, which was the best thing we could have ever done, you know, because he, he opened the Astrodome and I was coming to Philadelphia to open the um, Veterans Stadium. And uh, Bill was the best thing that this, ever happened to this organization because he changed everything we did and the way we operated uh, became very involved with the community and then when he stepped down as the president Dave Montgomery took over and carried the ball and we had a great family spirit back then Bill's philosophy was you work hard but we have fun and we did and back then in the early 70s you also just in your PR you were able to expand a little bit you had you hired Chris Wheeler uh, as your one full-time uh, employee, and I guess you had Adele uh, McDonald as your secretary, and then I think you'd have yep. different interns that would run through, of which I know Ed Wade yep. eventually was an intern. Yes, Scott Brandeth was an intern. Uh, Denny Lehman yep. was an intern. Uh, yep. yeah, Al Cartwright took a leave of absence from the News Journal. Of course, Bob Carpenter was on the board of directors at the News Journal, so there's no problem there. And he worked with us in 69 and 70, but then he went back to the to the newspaper after the seventy season. So I, Bill gave me a permission to hire somebody. And Andy Muster was one of our broadcasters and became a very good friend with Andy. And he said, I mentioned to him, I'm looking for somebody. He said, I think I got the right person for you, Chris Wheeler. So Wheels and I met at the uh, Ovations, I think it was. Yeah, over at Ovations, Spectrum. sure, at the Spectrum. And uh, it was in June, I think, late June. I offered him the job. Um, I didn't do extensive interviews and all that stuff back then. He took a pay cut, 
from where he was. He was working for GE out in Valley Forge writing press releases about space shuttles and stuff like that. <laughs> but but he, So he, he started on July 5th um, with his first day. That would be 50 years ago this coming July. How about it? And the rest is history, you know. And you know, the, he has amazing memory. Uh, he really remembers things well. He was he never missed the game because of illness. Never, mm. you know. He missed a game one time when his grandmother passed away. Mm. And uh, and you know, he and I were perfect because he came from the electronic background. I had the print background, and that's what we dealt with back then. So he did a thing called Philly Phone after every game, where he'd recap it and stations throughout the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, tri-state area would use it, and I. I wrote columns that I sent out at the Barron's Corner. We had a, we had a good rapport going, good way of doing things. And we, we traveled a little bit, but in 76, we were starting to get good, and we had an all-star game coming up. So I stopped traveling in 75, and he went on every road trip. And then in 76, we win in, in Montreal, Clinch the pennant. Yep. Um, and after the game, um, Harry and Ray, there was a big – celebration in the clubhouse we had a second game to play which we did and uh, wheels was on the trip obviously i went up paul owens invited me to come up because we we're clinching i went up with my wife and his wife and um, during the second game wheels walked into the radio booth which we often did as a pr guy john does this as his role too and whitey said you know chris wheeler's in this room he always thinks he can be a broadcaster. <laughs> right. Wheels, take over. <laughs> How do you get up and left? <laughs> yeah. And that's how Wheels got started on the air. It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, it's right. awesome. <laughs> for some reason, for some reason, the Phillies radio sound was in the booth of the boxes of the Expos. And John McHale was the president of the uh, Expos. And he's listening to Chris Wheeler. He said, this guy's pretty good. So he Bill Giles was there. He said, Bill, who is this guy in radio? Bill said, I don't know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's your radio, it's your radio yeah. broadcast. And it turned out to be Wheels. Wheels. And from then on, Wheels traveled because he was the third member of the broadcast team. Yeah. And we had Whitey, when it was fourth man. man you, had, you had Andy, well, it was Bison, and then Andy Mustard. Andy only did radio. And then uh, Whitey and Harry run TV. So Wheels was a traveling PR person and a broadcaster. Yeah, and awesome. I didn't travel the rest of the time. And because if I spent all of 76 getting ready for the All-Star game, and then we start getting the playoffs for three straight years, so I needed to stay at home and run, yeah. handle all that. So it turned out well, and it turns out that Wheels broadcast our games longer than anybody else in our history. Yeah, incredible. What a start. Uh, you know, yeah. you talked about we were getting good, Larry, and uh, a big player uh, we acquired um, in the middle of all that was Lefty Carlton. And, you know, Lefty yep. had those years, uh, most of his career, I guess, with Phillies. He wouldn't talk to the media. How, how was it? And we all love Lefty. And now you, you can't shut him up, right? He loves to tell yeah. stories. But, uh, but back then, you know, as the PR guy, uh, was, it, was it hard for you to, to manage uh, Carlton back then? No, it was easy. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Yeah, you just didn't say anything. But Policy but, is policy. Yeah. yeah. Was uh, it uncomfortable people, at all? Were you ever put in tough positions, though? Well, it was awkward sometimes. But in 72, the year we got him in the trade, he was the most cooperative person I've ever been around. We run him everywhere. You know, Brandywine Racetrack 
had a Phillies night. They wanted him to throw out the first ball. We went up there, you know. In the following spring, we, we went on a press caravan all through the this tri-state area, and he went with us all the time. Hmm. And he got burned by some writers. And he said to me one time, he said, why should I talk to them? They take everything I say out of context. Well, how do you argue with that? So he, he became very simple because policy with policy. You know, Ralph Bernstein was the AP photographer, writer in Philadelphia, a tough guy, but he was, that's, that's the way he was. And in spring training, Ralph goes up to him and says, takes his notebook, puts it down. He says, look, no notebook, no pen, no recorder. Can we talk? <laughs> and he put his arm on Ralph's shoulder and said, Ralph, policy is policy. Mm. So, you know, and Sports Illustrated tried everything. They called one time, wanted an interview lefty because he's a wine connoisseur. You know, he bought his wine collection. Policy is policy. How can, can we do a, a hunting show? He lo- loves to hunt in the wintertime. With he, Carver and Kuzman go hunting. How about if we went with him and said, story about hunting? Policy is policy. Wow. So it was simple, you know. Well, well, and again, we, we, we're, you know, Back then, um, he pitched complete games, but a lot of times. But then we get to the playoffs. That was my biggest worry. How do we handle lefty in the playoffs? Because you need to talk to the media because you have so many media there, you've got to take them to the interview room, right? So, But every time he pitched in the World Series in, in 80, and in the, some of the playoffs up at leading them, Chuck McGraw or one of the relievers closed out the game. So that was the person we took to the interview room. Hmm. But we're in Dodger Stadium. I forget. It might have been 78. And he pitches a complete game, hits a home run. So I, I got to take him to the interview room. All right? So I go out of our dugout. They're coming off the field. And so doing all the high fives and all this and that. I grabbed him by the belt. He says, what are we doing? I said, we're going over here. What are we doing? I said, just follow me. So I grabbed him by the belt. And then you had to walk over to the Dodger dugout on the third base side, go down there past our clubhouse, and the interview room was in like the left field corner of Dodger Stadium. So I'm pulling, I'm taking him down there. He gets up to the microphone. His eyes got as big as a dollar bill, as a dollar, silver dollar. And he whispered his answers. Mm. <laughs> so, but he never said a word to me, you know, never complained about it, all this and that. So then fast forward to 19. 19- 95 when he was 94 when he was elected to the Hall of Fame um, he was the, the Hall of Fame makes the announcement the next day they have the, the person come to New York City and do an interview you know for the media all the media so he said he would do that but he asked me to come with him to New York so I went with him to New York and uh, I was I sat with him we sat in his room the night before and I was trying to go over things about you know how are you going to handle talking now compared compared to this and that? And he would go off on some of his white wild theories. And I said, Lefty, we can't go there tomorrow. We, we can't go there tomorrow. So we go to the press conference and he's answering questions. And in my experience, after about 20 minutes, it's about time to end the press conference because the questions become redundant. They're to get off feet and so forth. So I kind of stepped in. I said, thank you. We'll take one more question. And Lefty said, no, let's keep going. I'm having fun. <laughs> so we kept going. But, and then when you've got in the Hall of Fame, he changed a little bit then too. You yeah, know? yeah, sure. He, he, he's a very intelligent person, uh, very knowledgeable about pitching and all this and that. But that was the route he took, and it was it was it was okay because my job was easier. Wheels' job was easier. We didn't have to deal with him. And you had guys like Schmidt on the team. You had Rose on the team. You had Lozinski, Boa, 
you know, there were plenty of other players that you could use for the, for the media. So were you, a little, media bit, was, were you a little bit worried, Baron, if, that other pitchers maybe, or other players might, might take that same route They'd say, if, if he's going to well, catch an easy out, maybe we could do the same thing. Or, or was it the fact that the personalities were, as you said, you know, you knew that they were going to, they were going to yeah. step up. They, they were, nobody really took his, his some, some of them tried to follow his training route and they couldn't do it. You know, putting his hand down in a rice pit and reaching to the bottom of a barrel. Try that sometime. Yeah. Mm. You can't do that. Mm. And so they tried that. Not, that doesn't have much of effect, you know, it, you know, the, the media and the, and the players aren't are like oil and water, so to speak, you know, uh, they could do, the writers could do without the, talking to the players, the players could do without talking to them, but the writers have a job to do. It wasn't always the writers. You had battles between the writers and the and electronic media too. Yeah. You know, we'd go into the manager's office after the game and the writers would go up first and they didn't want to ask questions because the questions would be taped by the TV camera and put on the air before they were printed. And then the photographer would, from the Channel 6 would, cameraman would bump somebody in the head, one of the writers in the head, and you get an argument over that. It was like being a referee after the game. <laughs> the well, you had to be a referee in 93. If you fast forward to then, you know, again, that was a team that had oh. a, a certain relationship with the media. And <laughs> Did you, you hear that groan? groan. I heard the groan. Uh, yeah. What was it like trying to uh, handle that team and, and with the media? Well, Lee Tobin was my assistant then and Gene Diaz, and they were younger, and they were kind of on the same page with that, but they did some of the traveling. But the one thing about that team was really unique. After every home game, and I wasn't on the road, I guess it happened on the road too, everybody was in the trainer's room, and they would talk about the game, and they'd get on each other about not, not making this play or doing that. We've got to change the way we're pitching to so-and-so. We can't do this. We can't play like this. Well, meanwhile, you know, you got an empty clubhouse. Uh, of, of players and the media's on there and the, the media kept growing that season and then you get to the postseason you get to the world series and so walking into the trainer's room and asking a player to come out to talk to the media was not the easiest job in the world you know they and we're, i'm an employee of the phillies just like they are an employee of the phillies but i was and i was a friend of them but i was Stepping into private territory somewhat. But there was a guy named Darren Dalton. Yep. And he would save the whole show for me. Mm. And Darren had to put ice on his both knees after the game. And he'd say, Baron, I got ice for 10 more minutes. Mickey, uh, um, Inky, you go out and help the Baron. You go out to the clubhouse. So they would come out and talk. So it was it was fine. The biggest grump of that whole bunch was John Crook. <laughs> he didn't want to do anything. <laughs> And, uh, and, but we're friends and I respected him for that. And he, I think he's a great broadcaster. He's done a great job. And he's going to post after taking over uniform, of a career as a broadcaster, you know, uh, but he, he was not pro pro media back then. And it was understandable. I mean, and the, any manager you have, they don't care. Right? The players don't want to talk. They don't want to hear your problem. They got enough problem, get them to play and following the rules and so forth. So you didn't have any allies in the clubhouse. You had mentioned the name, uh, let's go back to 1980, one of the guys you mentioned was Pete Rose, uh, and he was, I, I've heard often you talking glowingly about Pete and how accessible and how great he was with the media. He was he was, he was the best I've ever been around. Mm. You know, he was never, never changed. He was always consistent. He was always at his locker after every game, 
was that four hits or no no hits? Um, you know, you, you get requests for autographed items, you get requests for media interviews and so forth. He, he always could acknowledge you for it. It didn't give you a hard time. And uh, he was he was a light. And uh, we don't win if it's an 80 if we don't have him. There's no doubt about that. Bill Giles did a great idea as a salesman, trying to, signing him that time. You know, well, we had a press conference to say we weren't going to sign him. We had a press conference to say we signed him. Then we had a press conference to say we released him. So mm-hmm. um, he was... But he was—he knew back then the importance of it. He would go on, He went to press. We took a press caravan one time to Lakewood, New Jersey. We had Schmidt, Boa, Pete Rose, Lazinski, and Maddox. That's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. That's a good lineup we, we right there. High, yeah, we did high schools. We went to high school as part of the thing, and we did the assembly in the high school. And somebody said, "Mr. Rose, did you ever go to college?" And, Pete said, "Can't you tell I ain't never been to no college?" <laughs> <laughs> talk. Right. Baron, and and Baron, you said uh, Pete, uh, maybe best uh, player you've worked with. You also had seventeen managers, Phillies managers that you work with. Uh, do you have right. a favorite? Um. Well, Dallas Green was a good friend, a personal friend. Fergosi was great to deal with. I love Jim Fergosi. He knew everything about everything. <laughs> I don't care what you were talking about. Grouper fishing, grilling grouper, whatever the case, but he knew everything. Uh, you know, and um, Danny Ozark was good. Uh, I enjoyed Boa because I love Larry Boa. I love the spark he had, the fight he had. I mean, if he doesn't, he wouldn't have that drive. He wouldn't have never made it. He would never have made it. Uh, um Charlie Manuel, I was around not, not that much. He was fine too. They're 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 all good. They were all good. Uh, some of them were overmatched, you know, and that that happens. And Philadelphia's not an easy market compared to some of the other markets. You, you know, we used to get players from St. Louis, and they couldn't believe the media attention we got here because in St. Louis they had one paper, they had one writer. Mm. You know. In Philadelphia, you got mobs of it. So. How impressed have you been with uh, Joe Girardi? You know, because he has a, you know, he was on TV and he just seems really, uh, you know, great with the media and accessible. And uh, you know, he's he's been real impressive in that regard. I'm all in on Joe because he's old school. Yeah. Uh, Analytics. I don't care for analytics. I understand that they have to have them, but I think it's overdone. And I'm concerned about the human element in the game. Your your your. People that are back around your organization are scouts, and they're being replaced by video and analytics. And I think that's that's a concern for me. I know I'm old school. Maybe I'm more than old school. Maybe I'm ancient school. I don't know. But I'm old, but I've been around. I've been around Paul Owens. I've been around Dallas Green. You know, I've been around Fergosi. I've been around Ed Wade, Pat Gillick. You know, and. Uh, Baseball, baseball is a simple game played by human beings. You know, at one point, the players learned where they had to play a certain hitter because that was part of the game. You learned how to do that. You watched, and you knew which right fielder had a good arm, which didn't. Now they reach in their back pocket, and look at the piece of paper, and take two steps to the right. You know, Alex Bohm didn't catch that pop-up the other day in, in, in St. Pete, right? Correct. Where was he playing? He was a shortstop because they were pulled up. 
Meadows with a pull left-handed hitter. Yeah, yeah. So a long was, way to go for that ball. He had a long way to go. Yeah. If he's playing third base, he catches it. Hey, hey, Baron. It's switching subjects is that you mentioned the yeah, Pope. you mentioned just, the Pope. Let's switch. Let's switch. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. You mentioned the Pope, and one of this. I, I don't know. If you, one of the stories I remember, and this will this will how much the game has changed since you know since especially when you first got started. Uh, but oftentimes trades would take place in bars, right? And I yeah. remember didn't yeah. the Pope make a trade with uh, the guy from Atlanta Braves, Eddie Robinson? I think his name was. Yes. Yes. And, and he and he it got a little confused, and I guess you would have had to play a hand in that. Tell what happened in that situation, if you remember. Well, Eddie Robinson was looking for a shortstop, and um, he said, "Would you trade Boa?" Pope says, "Come on to the this we're in the winter meetings. Come to my room." So he went to his room. The Pope had a different clock. His clock started about ten o'clock at night, right? And it went forever. <laughs> the shank in and the that, evening. <laughs> the shank in the evening. And that particular night, uh, Eddie Robinson wanted a cigar. It's like two o'clock in the morning, and uh, Pope says to Bill Gargano, who was working in the front office then, "Go down to Lou Kahn's room, knock on the door, and ask for a cigar." So Gargano leaves. He goes down, but he knocks on the door of Sparky Anderson, not Lou Kahn. Okay. Sparky peeks to the door and, yeah, what do you need? He said, the Pope wants a cigar. <laughs> and Sparky goes back, reaches out the door, reaches, sticks out a cigar for him. So, <laughs> And so the, we go back upstairs, and after the, after the thing's all over, we send Craig Robinson and I forget who else went to the land and we got Ron Schuler, the relief pitcher. Well, it was uh, Barry Lurch, but didn't he think that he was getting Randy Lurch? <laughs> well, he thought at one point he was, but he also said to Ed to Pope as we left the office, he said, you son of a gun, you, you were never going to trade me Larry Boa. I got Craig Robinson instead of Larry Boa. So right. <laughs> we had a, we had a, we had a deal one time with the, the Tigers at the winter meetings where we were getting Bill free for Bob Boone and it, it changed. And, we had a we had a dance around that one too. The Pope the Pope was never a detailed person. Not I never saw him dial a phone to call another club or anything like that. He knew everything about a player except the guy's name. I mean he really did he knew everything. And he asked me one time if I want to go with him to Scout we were scouting there's a pitcher in Roxburgh named Harris. You remember the name? I don't know him. The, the, um he was signed. I think the Astros took him number one. We went to the game in Roxborough, and Pope watched the game from the right field foul pole corner. He said, "I don't like to sit behind home plate. All the scouts are there. All they do is jibber jab all the time, and I want to see how this guy reacts in the dugout. I want to see him what he looks like. Does he hang his head when he's having trouble? If a player makes an error behind him, what? How does he handle that in the clubhouse in the dugout?" He, he, and he, Pope would go on the road, and he'd go to the ballpark early, watch batting practice, sit in the stand somewhere. Nobody knew him, you know. He saw a guy on the parrots who busted his butt every time, every, all the time in batting practice, taking ground balls at third base, taking ground balls at first base, having fun and working hard. And we traded for him, Richie Hebner. Hmm. How about that? The Undertaker. Yeah. yeah. Um. Baron, you know, you were a big part of the formation of the Phillies Wall of Fame. And uh, yeah. it's, it's just such a great tradition. It's uh, the highlight of our promotional schedule every year. Uh, is there anyone not on the Phillies Wall of Fame that you think belongs? 
Well, it's 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 a it's an interesting question. Yes and no. Um, you know, we had some people think that Dave Montgomery should be in the Wall of Fame, mm. which I understand and respect. But if he's in the Wall of Fame, then Bill Giles has to be in the Wall of Fame, and really Carpenter has to be in the Wall of Fame. I don't think it. I think it should be players. Yes, we have Harry Callis on there. Harry, Harry was a definite exception. There's no doubt about that. We got John Vukovic on there, who wasn't a great player, but he meant so much to this organization. Paul Owens, you know. Dallas Green wasn't a good player, but he managed the world's champions. The one guy that I think we got more feedback from fans was that Jim Constanti wasn't on there. Hmm. He was an MVP in 1980. Um. He had one good year with the Phillies, mm. 1980, and uh, there were there was there were times that we did a fan voting. We had a paper ballot. We did that at a Veterans Stadium. Then we moved to Citizen Bank Park. We have a website now, so we also I decided to have a, a fan po- balloting on online. You know, I put ten ten candidates out there, and. Uh, and then I'd pick the, the top five in voting. I had a voting system of first place, you got three points, second place, two, and so forth. Yeah. That's what they do in the Hall of Fame. And uh, Jim Constanti, once in a while, would make the final five. But then I, I took the final five and sent it to a email that to the members of the media, broadcasters and, and writers, and he never got any any notice, I mean, never any, any votes. So... Hmm. We didn't put him in there. And um, toward the end of my stay, which my last year was there, was 2007, I thought, well, maybe we should do what the Hall of Fame does, have a veterans committee. Once every five years, look look through the guys that aren't there. And maybe we put a Jim Constanti in, you know, or somebody else that's not in there. But, uh, but I didn't follow through on that. So I don't know. Uh, you know, we... we, we we changed. They changed the rules. Now four years um, eligibility instead of five, which changed everything somewhat. And that's fine. That's it's their decision. I think it's a great thing. I'm I'm glad to what they're doing. I I, I totally agree with the with the John Middleton's idea of um, retiring Dick Allen's number. Mm. Um, yet that opens a can of worms. Um, and uh, but. We kind of decided. We never had a meeting and sat down and put it in writing. You had to be a Hall of Famer to get in. Yes, we retired Ashburn's number before he was a Hall of Famer. Yes, we retired Schmidt and Carlton before they got in the Hall of Fame, but they were lead pipe cinches. Robbie was done before us, you know. And um, I guess the biggest issue was number fourteen, and Del Ennis mm-hmm. wore that, and Pete Rose wore it, we and um, Jim Bunning wore it. So and Jeff Stone. When, Wore it, <laughs> well, and I think John Walkenfuss. I remember all these obscure fourteen guys. Like, really, we gave fourteen to John Walkenfuss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, when when Bunning was went in the Hall of Fame and he decided to wear a Phillies cap, to me that made it simple. Yeah, we right. were tapping his number number fourteen for him. Yep, I had to convince Pirates to be we would do that. We didn't do it right away after he got in the Hall of Fame, and uh, we got we got a lot of feedback from the Ennis family about retiring it for Dell. Mm. He was my childhood hero, but I didn't think he belonged in the Wall of Fame. And so it didn't happen. 
And um, maybe I was wrong, but that's the way I look at it. And, you know, you got Ed Delahanty and Sam Thompson that played mostly before the 1900s. You know, that's why we have the, that's what, you know, that's why we have the Wall of Fame. Yeah. The Wall of Fame recognized those guys. And I think, you know, you put a, you put a, you put a, a, a P on the wall out there for Ed Delahanty, that doesn't say anything about it. Right, but his plaque is on the Wall of Fame, which tells you who he was, what he played, what he accomplished. So, yeah, that was the reason I think the Wall of Fame uh, did that. You know, we did the A's when we started out. Then when we got through the vet, we were, I think, like twenty-eight A's players, and I was thinking I was concerned that we were going to run out of players. So we decided to discontinue the A's when we got to Citizens Bank Park. But we put a we put Connie Mack's statue on the west side of the ballpark. We put a big plaque on there of the, the people that the A's players who were inducted into the Wall of Fame right. when we were at the vet. So um, it was it was a it was a great thing. I mean, we you know and some you know, we 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 didn't always follow the same rules of how to get elected. Sometimes I basically picked them. The last few years at the vet, um, you know, I put in some of the deceased players from a long time ago because. Once we got to Citizens Bank Park, we could we could put on a pretty good show with the video, and and we have we have players where you have video. We didn't have video at Delahanty or right. sliding Billy Hamilton or Gary Kravitz, you know. True. Yep. So you could you could have a nice event, you know, and and there's people who say, well, you shouldn't have it every year. I disagree with that, but I, I don't think you should. In the Red Sox sometimes induct five or six players. Mm-hmm. I don't think that should be right either. But that's not my decision anymore. So it's up to the people up there. Well, well, Baron, you've had eight again. Go ahead. I I think it's a great thing for our history. I really do. Agreed. Agreed. Well, and it flows in what I was going to say. I mean, you've obviously had a long storied career uh, with the Phillies. Uh, There's a Baron's Corner, right? Is it uh, up in the the press press box? box. Sure. Uh, uh, Forever be there. But looking back on your long and storied career, what 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 are you most proud of? Uh, What do we walk away with? You know, now that you're you're, you're semi-retired. You're never fully retired because I don't think you can ever be fully retired. Um, no, but my, my blood Philly's red, by the way. Yep. So what, what are you most proud of looking back on everything? This podcast. <laughs> Very nice. That's what we were expecting you to say. Good man. answer. Very good. <laughs> no, no, um, I, the, the thing I got the greatest joy out of was working with everybody to close the vet. Mm. I thought we... You know, the Eagles downplayed the vet. They criticized the vet. The vet was our home for 33 years. Yeah. You know, we lived it. You know, and we wanted to, and we, you know, we were we were very blessed with Bill and David running the show. We really were. You know, we went to Pittsburgh to see the closing of that ballpark. We went to Cincinnati. I went to Baltimore. We watched video from San Francisco. I watched video from Atlanta, you know. I went to Cincinnati and it ended and there was no, there was no climax to the thing. Mm. The players just stood on the field and it was over. So that's where we came up with the idea of have lefty and we'll throw one more pitch, you know, Schmitty take one more swing and tug deliver one more pitch, the greatest pitch in the history of the vet, you know? And, you know, it, it, it was, a, it, I thought it did well. Um, the Olympics, you know, you watch the Olympics, the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, what do they do? They prayed, they prayed in the countries by the flags, behind the flags, right? Yep. So we decided to have flags for each year and have alumni behind them coming out for that. So 
create one more memory and create some tears. And I think we did that. You did, Baron. I tell you, it's a great memory uh, for me. Uh, the final innings, I know you're, you know, uh, yeah. it, it, it was just what a great way to salute the vet and uh, awesome. I, I know when people ask me, you know, a similar question, I, I always say that last year of the vet, everything we did, and then that last weekend was yep. just spectacular. Yep. But uh, it was a great, we got a great teamwork in there. A lot of people contributed. Yep. I was a leader, but. You don't get anywhere if you don't have people working for you. Uh, Chrissy would complain to me all the time. All you do is think of things. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are a great team, that's for sure. Uh, Hey, uh, I don't know if you know this, Larry, but we give our uh, guest a quiz at the end of the podcast. John Brazier, uh, this is the only thing he does anymore, uh, Baron. He just he sits around and does these, makes these quizzes. So I think uh, John's got a, you got your sheet out. You're ready to. I do, and, and Baron, it's, it's going to be different this week. Well, right, it's John? different this week because we have it's usually eight question, questions that I put together that's about your life, about the guest's uh, yeah. life. Okay. So, so you have an inside advantage of getting uh, of doing very well. Uh, but what we yep. decided, uh, because uh, we both love you, Baron, that we decided that we wanted to split the questions. So I've got four questions, and Burgoyne's got four questions. It's multiple choice. And, okay. And you just have to get six out of eight. And if you do get six out of eight, what does he get? He Tom? gets a bobbing head doll of himself. Of himself. Yes, you do have your own bobbing head doll. <laughs> which I'm sure which you great. probably have a, a, a garage full of them, right, Larry? I'm, I'm looking at one. I'm looking at one right now. I don't <laughs> I have those flat packs. Anymore, though. Well, I love that's it. a sign of a legend that you have your own bobblehead. <laughs> exactly. Dog. All right, Tom, do you want me to go first? Yeah, you go first? first. All right, I'll go first. All right, Larry, are you ready? Yes. All right, you are from Myerstown, Pennsylvania. I believe you went to Myerstown High, correct? Right. Uh, correct. And the town, it was originally called Tulpahawken uh, Town. Right. Until a citizen named Meyer was. Uh, was deeded this land, but he was shot by an unknown oh. assassin outside of a tavern. Oh my! And the town was renamed Myerstown after this person. Right. What was Myers' first name? Was it Oscar? Was it Isaac? Was it Henry? Or was it Isaiah? Oscar, Isaac, Henry, or Isaiah? I'm guessing Henry. Nope, it was Isaac. All right, it was a oh, tough one. I, I wanted so bad for it to be Oscar Meyer. I really did. <laughs> all right. That's all right. I think you'll do well here. Which of these celebrities did not go to Millersville University? And you obviously went to Millersville University. Which, but which of these celebrities did not? So three went to Millersville. One did not. Okay. A is okay. Charles Nelson Riley from the Match Game 76. B is Nicole Brewer, who's 2005 Miss Pennsylvania and TV news anchor for KYW. Black Thought, who is the lead MC of The Roots. The Roots uh, are the house band for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And D is Lawrence Nolan, who's a sculptor who created the Harry Cowell statue. So is it Charles Nelson Riley did not go? Was it Nicole Brewer did not go? Black Thought did not go? Or Lawrence Nolan? Which one did not go to Millersville? Uh, Nolan. No, he went to he went to Millersville. Uh, you probably did not know that, huh? Uh, I didn't. Was, I did. I met him, but I didn't. I don't, we didn't talk about that. Yeah, so, Char- okay. Char- Charles I, Nelson Riley, and and my, that, that should. If you listen to our other podcasts, I always pick someone from Match Game seventy six. So Charles okay. Nelson Riley is a familiar. But you're going to go on a roll from here. Here we go. All right, all right. <laughs> oh, this is a, <laughs> this is a tough one though. All right, they call you the Baron, but uh, I, I thought of the Red Baron. So what was the Red Baron's real name? The Red Baron was the infamous German fighter pilot during World War I. Uh, hmm. Was his name Eric von Manstein, 
Balder von Schirach, Manfred Albrecht Freeherr von Richthofen, or Paul von Hindenburg? You got to be kidding me. <laughs> exactly. I would, go, I would go with a long one, Baron. <laughs> Which was that? What? Not, Is that A, B, or C? That's C. <laughs> go with a long all one. I know, all I know, none of those guys played for the Phillies. <laughs> exactly. All right. We're going to give that to you. Yeah, we're we're go, I'm going to go with C. Yeah, C, C is C. correct. It's Manfred Albrecht Freiherr von Richthofen. Wow. All right. Here's your last one from me, and then they get easier with, with uh, Burgoyne. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is Chris Wheeler's middle name? Do you know his middle oh. name by any chance? I've got oh. – all right, here's your choices. you got A is Thurston, B is Fuqua, C is Humphrey, and D is Charles. So is it – Charles. Charles is correct. There you Very go. Very good. You're now two for four. All right. Christopher Charles Wheeler. How so he's CCW. CCW is, is cufflinks, right? CCW. <laughs> right. Oh, right. there it Charles. is. There you go. <laughs> Charles. All right. Hopefully you'll get easier questions from yeah, Tom Yeah, a couple of these are just trivia that I think you're going to know. Uh, Larry, uh, during World War II, uh, baseball wanted teams to host spring training closer to home. And in 1943, yep. the Phillies held spring training at A, Scranton, B, Reading. C, Hershey, and D, Lansdale. Hershey. Hershey is correct. That is and right. Wilmington the next year. And Wilmington the next year. And we were in Miami the, the few years before that, which is interesting. I yes, didn't know we had. Miami. We've been to Miami a couple of times. Huh. How about that? Yeah, didn't know that. All right. Here's another one. This is another kind of trivia. From 1972 to 1977, the Phillies had a minor league affiliate in Auburn, New York. Uh, it was part of the New York Penn League. Um, mm -hmm. What was the name of that ballpark where they played? Was it Eagle Park, B, Falcon Park, C, Hawk Park, or D, Ostrich Park? Falcon. Falcon Park is correct. Yeah, see, he's the Baron is crushing it now. He's on a roll, John. Well, uh, they had they had a Falcon Park one, and then then he remodeled it, and it became a Falcon Park two. How about that? And, and yeah, you, and, and you're good. Gonna, you're, you're, what? Okay, I'm asking you guys now. One of your good friends, Phillies player, alumni, made his debut in Auburn, New York. Huh. At Falcon Park. Yep, he's a right-hand pitcher. Right Larry Christensen. Nope. Tommy Green. Nope. No, that's it. He was, we're talking he was a Red, the, he was a Braves. Oh, oh yeah, right, yeah, right, Braves. Right. And this is early 70s. Oh, early 70s. Early to mid-70s. Dickie, Dickie Knowles. Dickie Ray, no, oh, Dickie Ray Knowles. How about, oh, that? how about that? Dickie Ray. All right, that's a good one. All right, here's, a, here's one. John, I don't know if you know this, but Larry Shank was actually a career minor leaguer. He was a relief yep. pitcher. Uh, yep. Oh, so you do. I wasn't sure if you knew about this guy. But in any event, uh, he had his best year, uh, John, in 1993. Went 5-2, 2.100 ERA. He struck out 101 in only 85 innings. Uh, Baron, did he play when he had that great year in 93 for A, Albany, B, Winnipeg, C, Sioux Falls, or D, Frederick? Frederick. Ah, oh, he did play for Frederick, but he had that big year uh, in Albany, as a matter of fact. Albany, okay, okay. Did you know of that guy, uh, Larry? Yeah, I saw where he we had one. Um, he actually pitched in Wilmington one time, but I couldn't go to the game, Blue Rocks. Yeah, huh. he, he but really I reached had, out to him. Yeah, great I, out to, I did a Baron's Corner on him one time. <laughs> you know, I, I wrote I wrote a letter to Lee Thomas that I. I found a relief pitcher for you. Blah 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 blah. blah, blah. <laughs> nice. His name is Larry Shank. You know, and uh, 
I got an autographed baseball from him someplace. I got a baseball card from him someplace. So I don't know whatever happened to him. We never did connect. But that uh, you can go in um, baseballreference.com and you can find him. Baseball reference. But I'm telling you, he, he, he dropped off the face of the earth because I yeah, tell you, he yeah. had really good numbers. And then I couldn't find anything. Uh, you know, maybe he, he got injured and, and never recovered. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I think he got the double A was the highest he got. Okay. Yeah, how about that? Or, yeah. All right. Well, you're on a roll. This is your last question, uh, Baron. Okay. In 2001, part of a pregame ceremony, you had the great idea to have the Philly Fanatic come out and deliver 35 Philly Fanatic dolls to this player. And it, or these 35 dolls represented his 35 grandchildren. Who was Jim Bunning? Jim Bunning. I didn't even have to go through the, uh, go. the list. Jim Bunning had 35 grandkids wow. and like 20 some odd great grandkids. Yeah, but yeah, that was we, a great Jim idea. Was, <laughs> yeah, Jim, Jim and Mary were in spring training one time. And uh, after the game, they went to the out, what is that? What's the, the merchandise room they have there? In um, in Rick Clearwater, the Clear, ballpark. Uh, the merchandise. I forget the name of it. But they went to the merchandise yeah. thing. And Jim's walking. I'm with them, Jim and Mary. And Mary says, oh, look at this. Look at this cute fanatic doll. Isn't they so cute? And Jim says, careful, Mary. You have to buy 35 of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you followed through because I just thought that was the greatest idea. Yeah. You know, uh, you know. It, I think it went yeah. up in a, a big pile of fanatic dolls that were at Jim Bunning's feet. You know, after the, after the fanatic was done delivering them. But I think Jim Bunning holds our unofficial record for throwing out the most ceremonial first pitches. <laughs> so we brought him back after the ten year anniversary of the bet. I think the twenty five year anniversary of the bet. Yeah, his perfect game. We brought him back several times. Right. Uh, yeah. I've got it written down somewhere about it. So I know you, about seven or eight times we had, you threw out the ceremonial first pitch. Yeah, so. there it is. The unofficial winner. And, uh, yeah. well, Baron, it's been great catching up with you. I don't know what took us so long to have you as a guest on our podcast, but I uh, really sure. thrilled you could make it here today. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate it too. And uh, now I can take my nap. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks, Baron. Really appreciate it. Okay. All All right. Right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye now. Take care. How about that, huh, John? Another, uh, well, we, it's funny because when, when he came on, you're right. You, you were saying, oh, make, make sure you're introducing him to maybe our listeners. Well, you don't said know Baron and never said Larry no, Shank I never for said the first Larry five Shank minutes. Because it's, it's the Baron. I and know, but there's a lot of listeners that I don't know, know that Baron is Larry Shank. I didn't realize, you know, this podcast is all about just literally how many times would we just sit around, have lunch with right. Larry, and just be like in awe of right. the stories. You're the story. you know? And I worked under Larry for many, many, many years. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we mentioned Chris Wheeler. We haven't had Chris Wheeler on our podcast. No, I think we did. I don't think we did. I asked him if he did. I'm pretty sure we did. But uh, All right. We'll have to go well, back and see that. But. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it was great to hear from from the Barons. So uh, another great podcast, John. Love it. You and uh, who knows what will be next. Uh, we- I yeah, think we'll have some surprises in our. Yeah, we always have surprises, and uh, again, great day today because uh, not only is it a beautiful day out, but uh, the Phillies front office was out there uh, clipping uh, ties off of chairs, and I can't wait to have a full house. You know, rest of the season, it's awesome. Sounds so, good. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody, and uh, we will see you next time on Phillies Backstage. Backstage with the boys. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or 
I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.